welcome to Crossbridge. If you are a guest with us, I am so glad that you are with us this morning. Our hope for you is the same as it is for everyone at Crossbridge, that we would all be taking one step forward in our faith in Jesus, because that is what we are all about. It is great to be back here again with you so soon. If you missed week two of our I Believe series, or if you don't know who I am, my name is Becky Fry, and I'm the administrative director here at Crossbridge, and I'm also a member of our preaching team. As Pastor Will mentioned a few weeks ago, I got the privilege of helping create this series with Pastor Jimmy. And I have to say that I have just loved it. There is something so satisfying about seeing something you've put so much work into coming to life and working. Each week, I've been able to walk away having learned something new, as at the same time realizing that there is so much that I still don't know about this topic. I have tons that I can still research and read over the next you know, few years, probably. But today, we are in our final week looking at the Apostles' Creed and what some of the foundational blocks of our faith are. We've been talking over this series about how our side blocks provide the structure for our faith. And we have blocks that talk about you know, God the Father creating heaven and earth, and we've got a huge chunk here in the middle that talk about Jesus and what he did and who he was. And last week, Pastor Gino briefly mentioned the Holy Spirit, quickly bringing in the third member of our Trinity, and also talking about our universal body of the church and the universal communion of saints that make up that church. These foundational blocks give our faith stability in the storms of life, and they help us to stay strong as we wade through the questions, the trials, and differing opinions of other believers. The middle blocks of our Jenga tower, they remind us that there's still plenty of room for grace, for discussion and discovery in our faith. Today, I get to walk us through the final phases of the Apostles' Creed. But before I do so, let's take a moment to stand and recite it for the last time together. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Today we are diving into the final two chunks of the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. The forgiveness of sins is a central message of the gospel, but the phrase wasn't actually included in the creed until the early fourth century. There was a lot of debate about what the forgiveness of sins actually meant. Was the church supposed to be the holy people of God, understanding holiness as moral purity, or was the church supposed to be loving and forgiving people of God, filled with people who mess up, but who still declare their belief in Jesus? Growing up, I heard a lot about forgiveness. I theoretically knew that we could receive forgiveness for all of our sins because of Jesus' death and resurrection. But in my everyday life, that theoretical knowledge didn't impact how I was living. 
it felt like I still had to try and be perfect and to do everything correctly, to try and not make any mistakes. I remember my dad telling a joke when I was younger, and it went something like this. My family arrives at the pearly gates of heaven, and St. Peter is there to greet everyone. He gives each person a pack of chalk and tells us that we have to follow a curved staircase down to hell. And as we go, we have to write down on the wall all of our sins from our life. If we finish before reaching hell, we get to go back up the stairs and enter heaven. Now, I know this doesn't really sound like a joke, but the punchline has me running back up the stairs as my family starts to cheer, thinking that I've made it to heaven. But then I turn around and say, nope, I'm not done yet, I just ran out of chalk. That's when everyone is supposed to laugh, but I never really found that joke particularly funny because not only did it paint me as a horrible person, but it left me with a lot of questions. Were we or were we not forgiven for the things we did in life? Was Jesus' sacrifice sufficient? Or was there work I was supposed to be doing to earn my place? Could I lose my salvation for something I did? I have a feeling that I'm not the only one here who has asked those questions. And I bet if we are all honest with ourselves today, we've all asked questions like this. How much am I forgiven? And what if I did something really bad? The great news is that these questions aren't new, and they are exactly what the church was dealing with when they decided to add the words forgiveness of sins to the Apostles' Creed. Over the centuries, Christianity flip-flopped between being generally accepted by the culture at large or being persecuted. In the early fourth century in the Roman world, Christianity was going through a period of persecution again. And the emperor Diocletian ordered that all Christian property was to be seized, all their books were to be burned, and all their places of worship destroyed, and all Christians and their leaders imprisoned. Now, while there were Christians who were martyred for their faith during this time, it wasn't the norm. Many Christians actually caved to the Romans' demands, and they participated in group worship to the Roman gods in order to save their lives. Now, I would like to think, if I had been there, I would have definitely stayed firm in my faith. But I wonder sometimes, because living here in America, I've never been made to face that choice between my life and my faith. Sadly, this isn't the case around the world, and even today, there are many Christians in places like Afghanistan where being a Christian is a life-or-death proposition. But that's an entirely different message for today that I don't have time to get into. So, back to the persecution of the Christians in the fourth century. After a period of time, that persecution did subside, and those who had stumbled and worshipped Rome's idols now wanted to come back and rejoin the church. And here is where we find the issue of forgiveness of sins coming up and the context in which it was added to the creed. Should the people who renounce their faith be allowed back into the fellowship of the church? Should these traitors, as they were called, have to be rebaptized into faith? If a person was baptized by a person who then renounced their faith, was the first person's baptism still valid? 
And what is it that makes a person a follower of Christ? And what do we do when a person falls short of the standard that's expected of them? The Christians who had not given in during the Roman persecution, they wanted to keep the church separate and holy from those that they saw as having left the faith. But it's important to note that in the Apostles' Creed, the forgiveness of sins comes after the reminder that we are one universal church and one communion of saints. We are only part of the church because we too have been forgiven of our sins. I like the way that Justo Gonzalez puts it in his book, The Apostles' Creed for Today. Through the action of the Holy Spirit in whom we believe, the church is the community of those who have experienced and continue experiencing the forgiveness of sins. But forgiveness isn't easy. There are times that we struggle with forgiving ourselves for something we've done, and we listen to that voice of shame that comes in and whispers to us that what we did was unforgivable. There are times that we can struggle with forgiving others for what they've done to us or to someone else. When the creed says the forgiveness of sins, we affirm that we and others are both forgiven by the work that Jesus did on the cross. When we look at what the Bible has to say about forgiveness, we find two main themes, that our forgiveness is tied to us forgiving others, and also because we've been completely forgiven, we are called to forgive others. Let's look at both of these concepts briefly. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Matthew, which is one of the four Gospels that tells us about Jesus' time here on earth. In Matthew 6, we find Jesus teaching his disciples to pray. And immediately after what we would call the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, we find these verses. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now these verses, they make me feel uncomfortable. It seems like it says there's a transactional relationship going on, that my forgiveness of, by God is dependent on my ability to forgive others. And this scares me because I have trouble forgiving people. I have trouble forgiving myself. So what does Jesus mean in these verses? Is our forgiveness dependent on forgiving others? Before I answer that, I want to look at one more story in Matthew. This time, Jesus is telling his audience a parable, which is just a story that has a point. And just before the parable, Peter asks Jesus a question. Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? No, not seven times, Jesus replied but 70 times seven. The parable is then Jesus elaborating on his answer to Peter. And you may have heard one, this one before. It's often called the parable of the unforgiving debtor. And it's a fairly long parable, so I'm gonna paraphrase most of it for us. Okay, there is a king who is looking to bring his accounts up to date, and so he's calling in his different servants to figure out where they are with him. And there is a servant who comes in who owes him millions of dollars. Now, this is more than the servant is ever going to be, ever, be able to repay him. And so the king asks for his money. The servant begs for mercy. 
and says, please give me time to repay this debt, and I promise I will. The king, in an act of great generosity, forgives the entire debt. He forgives it all. The forgiven servant then leaves the king's presence, and he comes across another servant who owes him thousands of dollars. And he asks the servant for immediate repayment. Now that servant says to the forgiven servant, please just give me more time. I promise I will repay the debt. But the servant who had been forgiven doesn't listen, and he actually throws the servant into jail until the whole debt can be repaid. Now watching all of this go down are some other servants of the king who quickly go back and explain what just happened. And so the king calls back the servant who he had forgiven, and this is what he says. You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Ooh, okay. We have two stories from the Bible which both talk about forgiveness being linked with our ability to forgive others. It's not a simple transaction, though. It's actually a heart issue. Our inability to forgive others is often just a symptom of something deeper going on inside of us. And I wonder if our heart issue is actually because we aren't convinced that we're fully forgiven. And so because of that, we're not able to then fully forgive others. You see, when we understand the grace that God has given us through the forgiveness of sins, that grace, then it just overflows out of us to others that we meet. But our own unforgiving attitude can keep us from being fully forgiven because we're unwilling to accept the amazing gift that God is offering to us. We are the debtor in Jesus's parable who's been forgiven a huge debt that we could never repay. No matter how many or how few sins we have, no matter how big or how little we think those sins are, our sin separates us from God. And we would be eternally separated from God if we relied on our own efforts to try and repay that debt. But because God loves us, he sent Jesus to be the payment for all of our sin. Like the king, God says we are completely forgiven. And through Jesus, our entire debt has been paid. We are fully forgiven by God, even though we don't deserve it. How much more, then, should we forgive others, even those who stumble in their walk with Jesus, like the Christians in the early 4th century did under persecution? I like how Ben Myers in his book, The Apostles' Creed, A Guide to the Ancient Catechism, states it. He says, We believe that we stand not by our own achievements, but by the achievement of Jesus' death and resurrection. We believe that the spiritually strong and the spiritually weak are both sustained by the same forgiving grace. We believe that we rely solely on grace, not only in our worst failures, but also in our best successes. We believe that if we ever should turn away from grace, 
If our hearts grow cold and we forget our Lord and become unfaithful to his way, he will not forget us. His faithfulness is deeper than our faithlessness. So when we proclaim, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, we are proclaiming that we believe that there is nothing in our life too big for God, that nothing that we do is unforgivable. This is amazing news for everyone who has asked Jesus to forgive them. But we also believe in the forgiveness of sins for each other and our obligation to forgive because we've been forgiven. This is about our relationship not only with God, but also with other people. Before we move on to our final block of the Apostles' Creed, I want to encourage you today or tomorrow to take some time to sit with God and think through these questions. Do I understand that I am fully forgiven by God for all of my sins? Have I accepted, truly accepted, the free gift of salvation through Jesus? Is there anyone that I'm unwilling to forgive? Is there any sin that I'm refusing to forgive in my life or someone else's? Am I harboring bitterness towards anyone in my heart? And then this leads us to our last block, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Life everlasting was also added to the creed in the fourth century to more fully explain the hope that Christians have. In the Greek language that the New Testament was written in, there's one Greek word for both resuscitation and resurrection. And this created confusion in the early church about whether the resurrection of the body was for eternity or if it was only a temporary resuscitation of life and that they were then able to die again. After all, in the Bible, we do see examples of resurrection from the dead, like Lazarus or Jairus's daughter, where they did die again. But the hope that the Bible gives isn't a hope in a temporary resurrection, but it's an eternal one, hence the term life everlasting being added to the creed. When we look back at the creed as a whole, we can see a theme jumping out at us, that God is not just a God of the spiritual war world, but also the God of the material world, that God created the heaven and the earth. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. The Holy Spirit is not only living in heaven, but he also indwells each one of us here on earth. God is the God of the spiritual and the material. This has been important throughout the entire creed, and it's also important today as we look at you know, how heresy was still trying to infiltrate the church. The Greco-Roman culture of the day was filled with philosophers like Socrates and Plato who preached that the soul was immortal and that when you died, death was actually freedom from the body for your soul. But the everlasting life that Christians proclaimed wasn't a soul escaping the body. It included both the spirit and the physical body. We as Christians believe in a physical and spiritual resurrection of the dead. 
it's not just a continuation of the way things here on earth are already, but it's a new heaven and a new earth. And here's where I get to admit to you that I have no idea whatsoever how this happens. I, along with most of you, probably have lots of questions. What does it look like? How's it gonna happen? When's it gonna happen? What type of body do I get? Can I pick my body? Am I stuck at a certain age or can I change it? And I don't have any of those answers for you today, sorry. But I would also go so far as to say that the answers to these questions, they're really middle block issues. They're not what I base my faith on and they don't change the hope that God is offering us. The foundation of our Jenga tower is the resurrection of our body and life everlasting. For those of us who have a relationship with Jesus and have trusted in the forgiveness of sins through the cross and his resurrection, that everlasting life is with God. For those who don't believe, their life everlasting is completely separated from God. And Pastor Will talked about this in week four, and he talked about it being, that's what we call hell. If you missed that message, I would highly encourage you to go back and listen. Now, the Bible isn't real clear on what this looks like. The closest that we get to an answer is in Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. In chapter 15, verse 23, he tells us that Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Because Jesus was raised, we too will be raised to life again one day. When? I don't know. How? Not sure about that either. But I am comforted that the people in Paul's time had the same questions that we do. Let's continue reading in verse 35. How will the dead be raised? What kinds of bodies will they have? What a foolish question, or as we would say, a middle block issue. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you are planting. Then God gives it a new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. Paul is trying to explain this mystery in a way we can understand. A seed looks very different from the tree or plant that it grows into, but it always has the same essence inside of it. An acorn always grows into an oak tree and not a fig tree. Our bodies here on earth will change as the resurrection at the dead, but they will still be our bodies. He continues in verse 51, but let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, and when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Wow, as much as I don't understand how or when this happens, 
I am so excited for when Jesus does return and my broken down earthly body is transformed into my glorious heavenly body, when there will be no more sickness, no more death, when we will live life everlasting with Jesus forever. That is our hope as followers of Christ. That hope is what we have been declaring throughout the Apostles' Creed. That is the hope of the resurrection. This hope is built upon the foundation of our faith. The Bible is our source of truth, and it's where we get the building blocks that have made up this whole Apostles' Creed. We have seen over the weeks how the Creed has been purposeful in fighting against heresy, how the Creed was purposeful in speaking out against the lies of the culture in which they lived. We have seen how the Creed helps us create a foundation of our faith. We have the foundational blocks that we profess as Christians. We believe in God, the Father, the Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, 100% God and 100% man, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of Mary the Virgin. We believe that Jesus had a body that was beaten and broken for us, was crucified and then raised again from the dead. We believe that he is now seated at the right hand of God and that he is waiting for the perfect time to come back to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit who gives us the same authority and power that Jesus had. We believe in the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. With our foundational blocks in place, our faith is secure. I can bump our Jenga tower, I can wiggle it, and it's not going anywhere. It hasn't toppled at any movement. Our faith is sturdy when we build it on the right things. Now, I can start to take out some of the middle blocks here of our tower, and these are the things, remember, that we can disagree on, the things that we can have grace for with each other that we still don't understand. And if I wiggle it, it's still pretty secure because the middle blocks are not where we place our faith. Now, if I put the middle blocks back in and I start to take out some of our foundational blocks, if we decide, you know what? I don't know that I really quite believe that God created the heaven and the earth, or you know what, I believe this about Jesus, but I don't believe that one. And this one, you know, not so sure about that. And, you know, not really sure if they've explained that to me fully. And we start taking out the foundation of our faith and all the different things that we might not agree on that actually are our structure. Our faith is no longer secure. It's already wobbling and at the slightest pressure, our faith can crumble. That's why it is so important that we know what we believe and why. To read the Bible, God's word, and look at it as the basis for our faith. As a little girl, my faith was shaken by that joke that my dad thought was funny. But it made me scared, and it made me doubt God's forgiveness. God isn't a father who wants us to be scared. Now, he hasn't told us everything, and I doubt we would even understand if he tried. But our faith and hope 
is built upon his word. We don't have a broken down faith that is easily toppled by the any wind and wave that comes into our lives. My hope and prayer for all of us is that this series has given us a starting point to evaluate our faith and to dig deeper into God's word together. So Crossbridge, what do you believe? Thanks so much for watching with us, and we hope that you'll join us next week, either online or in person, as we return home to Kingsway Regional High School for our worship gatherings this Sunday at 10 a.m. Be sure to stay tuned on our social media for all the information on how you can join us this Sunday. At Crossbridge, we are all about loving God, loving people, and serving the world. If you want to join in on this mission, you can go to crossbridgecc.org slash give.